0: Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel.
1: Kim, thanks so much. So as we're winding up 2018, I wanted to start out our news wrap with the fun and fascinating release of Google's top search items in the year. So now Google releases these top search terms with the capacity to break it down by country. Hmm. Um, So when we look across the continent, there were definitely some common themes. The love of the World Cup, celebrity tracking, the use of internet for information on jobs and employment opportunities. So jobs near me is a top search term, for example, in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And on the political front, following closely subnational elections, opposition politicians, and electoral procedure. But there were also some really interesting differences by country. So in Nigeria... 2018's most searched news event was the Asun elections, which gripped national attention in September due to alleged incidents of voter intimidation and interference. In Kenya, self styled National Resistance Movement General Muguna Muguna was a top search result, along with Kenya's Certificate of Primary Education results. The trending events featured the swearing in of Raila Odinga as the People's President in January 2018. Awesome. And then, Right? I mean, it's really interesting to see what people are following, what they're looking for. And perhaps most interesting from a technology, social media, and politics perspective, in Uganda... VPN, or virtual private network, shot up in search terms on July 1st of 2018. This was the very day that the social media tax came into force, which requires Ugandans to pay a fee of 200 shillings a day to use platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and WhatsApp, among others. So VPN allows users to secretly access a network and share data remotely through public networks. So VPN masks the user's exact location and invades the blockage. So I think it's really an amazing display of citizens using the very technology that government is trying to control in order to overcome those controls.
0: That That is really exciting. Now I'll go ahead and I'll start with some fun news too. My favorite headline this week was about the Singapore Marathon. The standard headline read, Clean 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 sweep for Kenya at Singapore Marathon. (laughs) Yes, that means that the first 17 finishers in the Singapore Marathon were all from Kenya.
1: There's going to be some national pride there this week.
0: Yeah, as if Kenyans aren't already really proud of their ability to do long-distance running. Exactly. Um, So I also wanted to follow up a little bit on last week's episode. Kojo Asante, who was our first-ever guest on Ufahamu Africa, wrote a long public post on Facebook about Ghanaians taking to the streets last Saturday to protest corruption in Ghana. I thought our listeners might like to take what they learned in the last episode about recent student protests at KNUST and put them in a broader context of citizen political engagement in Ghana. I also like how Kojo's post incorporated a lot of the data collected by Afrobrometer and the Center for Democratic Development, or CDD Ghana, to, again, like, just give a sense of really what citizens think and what their perceptions are of government and corruption.
1: That's fantastic. And I think obviously there's drawing from this momentum. It was so great to have Lauren and George explain that recent development to us. So, I also wanted to turn our attention to some issues about the environment. And this is on the heels of the very dire UN climate report. Mm. And I wanted to dig into some of the ways in which African countries are strategizing around the diverse set of challenges that they face. Of course, given the incredibly varied ecological zones across the continent, there is no one singular response and no one-size-fits-all model. But countries with coastal regions have a certain set of concerns about rising water levels, and new research suggests that southern Africa could be exposed to massive cyclones in the future. And this week in Africa reported recently that climate change is making soil saltier and therefore changing the growing conditions for many key crops. So the unique challenges that cities face, obviously, as well in rapid growth, are exacerbated by climate pressures. So we don't often hear as much about landlocked countries, but they, too, face a combination of critical pressures. This week, I wanted to highlight the responses that Chad is enacting. And Chad actually may be one of the most vulnerable countries globally due to a combination of extreme poverty, a large refugee population from Darfur and Central African Republic, deforestation of natural savanna with increasing farmland and production pressures, and decreasing rainfall in the agricultural dependent society. So it's interesting to look at the proactive responses being implemented there. One project is aimed at teaming up with other West African nations to collectively revive Lake Chad, and another aims at reducing the country's dependence on traditional water sources. Policymakers and agriculturalists alike are also harnessing traditional tactics like Zai to maximize water use efficiency, in which farmers dig pits to catch water and then add compost and manure to attract termites that then burrow even deeper, allowing nutrients and water to seep into the subsoil. Studies show that this practice significantly enhances crop yields with less rain than other irrigation methods, Hmm. and it can be applied across the Sahel zone throughout the semi-arid region. Farmers are also adopting agroforestry, which is a combination of growing crops and trees on the same land. And the practice has also been shown to increase harvest. So the key approach here and the reason for optimism that I wanted to highlight and bring to our listeners' attention is really that these practices are building from the understanding that the best people to develop mitigation and resilience to climate change are the people living in those regions.
0: It's really interesting, especially, you know, as someone who has done a lot of research in a landlocked country that is having serious issues um, related to rain-fed agriculture, right, Malawi, what I'm most impressed with, actually, is that there's this tradition, right, that um, that farmers have used, and, and and I'm just curious to learn more about this Zai practice and how long it's been around, and, you know, I'm I, now it makes me curious to explore in Malawi, you know, if there are similar... Um, responses to lack of rainfall or erratic rainfall that that farmers in Malawi could use, so thanks for bringing that to our attention
1: absolutely absolutely and it's really exciting to see the sharing of best practices across you know different um different zones, yeah. Now, for
0: our listeners who are following the news from the U.S. this week about President Trump's new Africa policy and how the framing is really one of the U.S. competing with Russia and China, I'd encourage reading Judd Devermont's testimony to the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, who recently held a hearing on China and Africa. I also recommend a piece from a couple of months ago by development economist Anzetse Ware. In it, she focuses on the debt trap framing, which we see in some of that U.S. rhetoric this week. She wrote, quote, "The debt trap narrative undermines the decision-making power and agency of African governments. Even worse, the debt trap narrative infantilizes African governments, painting them as little more than overgrown children who have to be constantly supervised by other powers if there is any hope of them getting anything right." End quote.
1: Cam, thanks so much for bringing that up. It's definitely something that popped in the news, and it'll be interesting to see how uh, the U.S. actually puts in place this, uh, supposed U S policy.
0: Right. Right. Well, next week we'll post links to what we've mentioned in this episode, as well as bonus links on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. This week's conversation is with Michael Woldemiriam, an assistant professor of international relations and political science with the party school of global studies at Boston university. His teaching and research interests focus on African politics, and he has special expertise on the Horn of Africa region, where he has conducted extensive field work for his new book published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press, Insurgent Fragmentation in the Horn of Africa, Rebellion and Its Discontents. We spoke with Mike a couple of weeks ago at the annual meeting of the African Studies Association, and we thank the ASA for making their ASA pod booth available to us for this interview. So welcome to the podcast we're really excited to have you here and in particular to talk about your book but first We do want to take this opportunity during our chat with an expert on the Horn of Africa to hear your thoughts on what we've interpreted as big changes in the last few months. Following Abiy Ahmed's ascension to prime minister in Ethiopia in April this year, there's been a warming of relations between Eritrea and Ethiopia. Thousands of political prisoners have been released, and Ethiopia's new cabinet is now a gender parity. And solid work, Zudwa has become Ethiopia's first female president. Is this all cause for cautious celebration, or are the international media missing important facts?
2: Yeah, I mean, my take would be, I mean, there are a variety of opinions uh, on this issue and a variety of reads on Abhi. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I would say it's a, a cause for uh, cautious optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I mean, my sense, I have no reason to doubt at this juncture that the prime minister is committed to the project of political reform and mm-hmm. democratization in particular. Mm-hmm. And I say say this because, you know, to use a language of like international relations, like he sent a, a lot of costly signals, like the things yeah. that he, he he has done are not cheap and have come at some risk to him uh, politically in terms of prime ministership. Now, we, we don't consider it to be that big a deal. But initially, the release of some of these political prisoners mm-hmm. yeah. was very contentious. There were One must imagine internally uh, sort of a lot of pushback from members of the the old guard, so to speak. You know, even initially the peace deal uh, with Ethiopia, the rapprochement with Ethiopia, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, that that came at some risk uh, to him as well. There were constituencies that were concerned about the overtures to Eritrea. The inertia in relations between the two countries was about territory Ethiopia controlled and would have to give up, right? Right. So, yeah, I certainly don't have any doubt about his, at least at this juncture, about his commitment to reform. Mm-hmm. But the question is, power can sometimes change people, right? Mm. What happens? I mean, the, the real tests are yet to come. Mm. The, 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 the elections in 2020, mm-hmm. there has to be an enabling environment for that. Um, changes to uh, laws on political parties, the civil societies, you know, proclamation, there's a variety of things that have to happen to sort of make this You know, make this uh, a real election that's competitive. So we'll see.
0: Now, in an academic article you published before these big shifts happened in the Horn, you wrote that it was a critical juncture for Ethiopia and Eritrea. More specifically, you wrote that. While Ethiopia's recent selection of a new prime minister has created real possibility of a reset of Ethiopia-Eritrea relations, the underlying structural dynamics between the two countries remain volatile. Um, So this leads us to ask you two questions. First, how much can we attribute these changes to Abiy's ascension as PM? And second, to what extent should folks continue to be concerned about volatility between Ethiopia and Eritrea?
2: I would say in terms of understanding you know, what drove the initial rapprochement, I, I would say it had a lot to do with changes within the ruling party in Ethiopia and Abiy's emergence. So mm-hmm. not, not not anything that he did necessarily in terms mm. of proposing anything new mm-hmm. uh, because the structure of the deal is actually not that much different from what the previous government was advocating for. Mm-hmm. Like if they could have imagined what this rapprochement would look like, mm-hmm. it's sort of how it played out. Mm-hmm. But I think the very fact that you had a new prime minister in uh, Ethiopia that was not associated with the TPLF, so mm-hmm. you know the, the party that was at the, the head of the old EPRD, hierarchy, made Eritrea more willing to kind of engage. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's that was, was really critical. So not something that Abiy necessarily did, mm-hmm. but just the fact that he had come to power and was different and not associated with the TPLF and actually seemed to be a rival of them and was sort of... You know, pushing them to the political margins within Ethiopia's federal government.
0: Now let's switch gears and talk about your book, uh, recently published by Cambridge University Press, Insurgent Fragmentation in the Horn of Africa, Rebellion and Its Discontents. The central question driving your book is why and under what conditions do rebel organizations fragment? Basically, you were interested in understanding what makes rebel groups split. What made you to be interested in this question?
2: In terms of my research agenda, I, I tend to be anchored in the politics of a particular region. It's it's just—and mm-hmm. and the big intellectual or conceptual questions I ask, that's true of my second project as well, mm-hmm. sort of emanate from big things that have happened in the region. So since the 1960s, the horn has been characterized uh, by— a lot of civil war, right? In all mm-hmm. the regions, major states, Ethiopia, Sudan, Somalia, of course. And I think one of the big things that comes out of any analysis of those civil wars were how messy they were. Yeah. The fragmentation of the, the main participants, right. the, the rivalries between the different rebel groups and different rebel factions. So that was something that I sort of saw and said, okay, this is interesting. Then, of course, like every good scholar, I look for a gap in the in the literature, mm-hmm. right? And, and saw very quickly when I started my, this came out of my dissertation, mm-hmm. that there was, at that time, not so anymore I would say but at that time there was a pretty big gap on the literature on the internal politics of rebel groups Mm -hmm. and and their underlying fragmentation which is a really important variable when you start thinking about you know civil war outcomes when you think about the nature of violence the scale intensity of violence a variety of other outcomes so I think at that time uh, when when I was in grad school I mean you know, we were reading like Weinstein and Calibas that were like the big books on. But there wasn't really that much else. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I said, okay, here here's a gap that you know you know like a, a, any good scholar or you know someone writing a dissertation. I'm like, okay, maybe I can make an intervention here. That's how it started. But yeah. that that literature has changed dramatically in the time that I've been working on this. I mean, there's so much stuff on this issue right now. Yeah, really good stuff. So
1: yeah, we think it's important to point out that while much of the world is at peace. You make a good point in your book about why we should be studying rebel organizations. So in your book, you write, If we care about the contemporary phenomenon of state failure, we need to seriously consider the problem of political factionalism and fragmentation within armed non-state actors who seek to replace incumbent governments. And you point out how there are 14 African governments that are currently run by political parties that were once rebel organizations. Mm -hmm. So your book studies the two in the Horn of Africa, Mm -hmm. Ethiopia and Eritrea. Did you or have you considered extending your study to any other countries in Africa or even elsewhere in the world where regimes, had their start as rebel organizations.
2: Yes, I mean a lot of the work I'm doing now is kind of moved away from civil war specifically or is looking so I'm doing some work right now on Sort of another big issue in the Horn of Africa: secessionism mm-hmm. and like the outcomes of long-run outcomes of secessionism for yeah. Because just as
0: you were saying in the in the last question, when you were talking about uh, Ethiopia and Sudan and and fragmentation, I was like the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the secession of South Sudan, absolutely. and then of course of, of Eritrea.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so that's that's kind of a secondary of research for me. But but on this particular issue, yeah, I've been doing some work. I have a paper with someone I'm sure you know, Chris Day, um, at mm-hmm. College of Charleston. Uh, he also does some great work on rebel groups. But we're, we, we're, we've we written a paper on um, rebel to ruler transitions. Hmm. Um, and looking at, and this actually ties to the issue of state failure, looking at what happens in the, in the immediate moments right before and after rebels actually oust incumbent governments, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why are some rebels, victorious rebels, able to consolidate control of the state mm-hmm. uh, over the long term? And mm-hmm. why do others... Are others not able to do it, yeah. and when they don't do it, that that's usually the the environment in which you see protracted state collapse. That's mm-hmm. what happened in Somalia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty much what happened in South Sudan after a little lull. Right. Um, and so, <clears throat> almost if you if you look at state failure in Africa, the, the basic ingredient oftentimes is the incumbent is ousted, mm. um, and then the rebels come in and they're going to disarray, right? right. It's a Central African Republic. So right. in, in this paper that, that we've been working on for a while now, I mean, we've got, obviously, the horn cases that I know, Eritrea, Ethiopia, uh, Somalia, but, He's done work, great work on Uganda. Mm-hmm. So we've got Uganda in there, Central African Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, he did some recent field work there, and um, Sierra Leone, which mm. is another case he knows well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, trying to broaden this a bit and, you know, see what we can find.
1: So it seems like Uganda and, and Rwanda, certainly Museveni and Kagame, is in mm-hmm. cases where the rebels came in and, and created, um, you know, very kind of centralized state. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, reestablished a different type of political order. Right. Um, and so that would be the other end of the spectrum that you're looking at. Right.
2: And, uh, yeah, and those would be the cases where, you know, certainly these are kind of authoritarian, illiberal state-building models, but but ones in which, you know, the RPF and the NRM, you know, consolidated control of the state, very different from the rebels that ousted Siad Barre in Somalia, for, for instance, in 1991, where they just disintegrate right. within, mm-hmm. within weeks. Right. Within hours, actually, mm-hmm. after right. Barre flees the capital. So... Yeah, so, we're, so it's, it, the paper analytically really focuses on that that those weeks and months right up to the end of the war and then—or the ouster of the incumbent government and then right after it as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see where it goes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Great. Was there anything else that you learned through the course of your research that didn't make it into the book? You know, things that were surprising to you um, that you felt like this, is, this doesn't, you know, fit in the book per se, but mm-hmm. you want people to know about?
2: This didn't make it into, into the book, and maybe this is just a commentary on um, on the politics of the region, but I was, I mean, there's sometimes, like, this conception of, of, and people have written about this, but, like, conception of African rebels as being kind of apolitical actors, like, driven by, like, base motives and mm-hmm. economic interests and, like, right. war as criminality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and maybe this was a generation of civil wars I was talking about. This was mostly pre-Cold War, or rather, you know, pre-Cold, you know, transition to the you know to the post-cold war era but Mm -hmm. i found that the people i was talking to were incredibly committed like ideologically politically committed to the ends that they were pursuing um and that they took great personal risk uh very little benefit in sight to actually you know do what they did um and you know a lot of them were uh you know even as you know people who are you know you know, 20, 30 years out from this, from this conflict, still traumatized and affected by it, still paying the cost and the burden of their experience in this conflict. And I was just um, I w- I was just struck by how much they had actually given up uh, for th- for this particular cause. I mean, it's something that, that I think about because growing up in the 1980s, this was like a moment of Eritrean nationalism, and people were, you know, doing incredible things, uh, you know, in pursuing this, this that, the idea of an, of an Eritrean state, mm-hmm. um, obviously— there have been challenges, subsequent challenges. But yeah, just an enormous amount of respect, I guess, is what I would say.
0: Now, before we go, we like to ask our guests if there's anything that you've read recently or that you're you're looking forward to reading that you might recommend to our listeners. So
2: a book I, I recently <laughs> read was Lisa Muller's book on protest, political mm-hmm. protest in Africa, third-wave protest, which I, mm-hmm. I I know that you guys have looked at. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, fantastic book, and, and one that I will definitely— uh, use in class Um, yeah i mean first of all it's just so germane to everything happening in the continent right now right it's a great prism uh for thinking about ethiopia i think um that's one i mean so it's just very useful the the other thing is that um you know, it's nice to see a book on African politics that doesn't hinge so much on and contention in Africa. That doesn't hinge so much on ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ethnicity is important, Amen. obviously, yeah. <laughs> but like the like bringing class back into the equation, I, yeah. I, I found uh, it's just it's very useful. And, and even just in that respect, I think a good teaching tool. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And to m- many other things I could say about the book. I, I, I you know, I reviewed it, so that's that's why <laughs> I that's why I had, uh, you know, that's why I, I read it. And so it's great. Mm-hmm.
0: Wonderful. Well, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to learn from you. Thank you. you. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Ufahamu Africa is a production created by Kimi Dion and currently sponsored by the Program of African Studies and the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University, as well as the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside. Kara Stevick, Medill School of Journalism class of 2019, is Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until
1: next week, safiri salama.